0: The Telegraph. the Telegraph Podcasts This week on Mad World I have a woman who's completely awesome I met her as part of my mental health campaigning work Her name is Sue Baker. She runs Time to Change, which is a campaign to end discrimination surrounding mental health issues, which is part of Mind and Rethink Mental Illness. Now, I met you, Sue, at an event way back in April of this year, after the marathon. (laughs) I'm still banging on about that. We arranged to have a coffee. And what is so fascinating about you is as the coffee went on and we did the normal talk about campaigning and mental health, the importance of changing the conversation around mental health issues, is your own story started to unravel, which we're going to get to. I start each podcast by asking people how they are, right? So, yeah. truthfully, honestly, honestly, right this moment, in the present, how are you, Sue Baker? OBE, no less. <laughs> no less is not like a letter given out by the Queen in her birthday honours. Oh, I'm looking no forward less. to getting
1: one, uh, uh, a yeah. no less. OBE, no less. <laughs> a whole new category. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm well. I had a good night's sleep. we have got a young baby, so she didn't keep me up last night. My poor partner, can't say the same for her. I'm good. Yeah, looking forward to... We're going to have a bit of a break soon for a couple of weeks. Oh Yeah, no, good. Very busy at work. It also, it seems busier than ever. I think I say that every year, but it definitely feels like it's busier than ever.
0: Now, you, as well as running this massive mental health campaign, you, I don't want to like sound too bleak, but you have cancer. I do. Yes. So yeah. this just came out. We were just sitting there having our <laughs> flat whites at the, <laughs> in the canteen in the Telegraph. And you were like, oh, yeah, when I had to take some time off last year and then oh because of that. And I'm like, what? Sorry, wait one second. What? And you said, oh, I've got terminal cancer. I was like, right. OK, would you like another coffee? Hot chocolate? Maybe, I don't know, a biscuit or something. you were very matter of fact about <laughs> it can you go way back to the beginning you found out that you had cancer on the same day that your partner your wife is you mm. married yes we found just got remarried she was, yeah. you just got remarried
1: upgraded right. on Friday yeah oh really greedy aren't we two weddings well because civil partnership you can upgrade to a equal Marriage, a marriage. Yeah. So, oh, congratulations we,
0: on your second marriage. I know, same
1: person, <laughs> I
0: hasten to add. I hope when Actually I get married listening. again. Yeah, no, I'm joking. No. <laughs> That's a joke, darling husband, if you're listening. You found out that you had this illness on the same day mm. that your wife found out she was pregnant. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about?
1: Yeah, I can. Yeah, gosh, yes. Where you to start? tell me a lot about this. Yes,
0: <laughs> well, I don't want to bore everybody. Really no, with you a bit. won't bore anyone because you're a fascinating woman. <laughs>
1: well, we'd been trying for a baby on and off for about eight years, obviously with some help assistance. I knew I wasn't well, but I thought it was something else. Um, I didn't realise
0: potentially I might have cancer. Do you think you were just run down because you worked so hard? No,
1: I was very big. I looked about nine months pregnant. Okay, but I was told I had fibroids. So, ultrasounds aren't very Specific, they can just show a lump, they're not very sophisticated, really. Mm. And I'd had a fibroid removed before, which is a non cancerous sort of lump. I was told that I had two very large ones, and I might need you know, surgery. And at my point in life, it wouldn't have been a problem, I'd stopped trying for children quite a long time ago. Um, How old do
0: you too, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, dare you!
1: <laughs> I'm a half century, I'm 50. You yeah. look,
0: she, I just like, you look seriously <laughs> cool, hot, even. Can Girl. I say that without getting reported to HR?
1: No, I think HR will let you say that. My <laughs> HR would. <no. laughs> yeah, so I just thought, you know, they grow and they would start to shrink at some point in life. I took some hormones to try and shrink them and avoid surgery. I looked like I'd been incapacitated for quite a long time. I was getting to lose a lot of weight in other parts of my body, like my legs. It looked like I hadn't been able to use my legs for a long time. But I was just getting massive out of the front. I was absolutely huge. And also I take the blame. I've been fortunate most of my life to be able to put my health on the back burner while I focus on my career and you know, and running this campaign, which was a silly thing to continue to do when something wasn't right.
0: We're always trying to pinpoint mm. blame. Don't you think yeah. sometimes, you know, like, it's not your fault.
1: No, I should have pushed to be checked out earlier, but never once did that C-word enter my head. I'd never well, ever C-words did? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I just thought they were fibroids again. And I was very ill from what I thought was the hormones I was trying to take to drink them. But obviously something else was going on. We booked to go to Cambodia because we wanted to go there for quite a long time before we had a final try at trying for a baby. I remember my partner saying, don't you think you should maybe get yourself checked out? I was like, well, look, I think I know what they are and you know, we'll do that when we get back and don't think there's anything awful going on. Lo and behold, we went to Cambodia, which the consultant later told us we should never have gone because my tumour could have erupted in the middle of nowhere in Cambodia. But, I mean, in a good way we did go and it was amazing. It could have been our last ever... Trip anywhere, and we'd really wanted to go for quite a long time, and it was magical. Then I came back, came back to work, still full pelt, not knowing what was going on. And then suddenly, one weekend in February, I had a pain that wouldn't go away. This is last February last year. Yeah, February okay. last year. 2016. 2016, yeah. And I thought, hmm, this isn't going away with regular painkillers and then it was getting worse and everything always seems to happen to me late at night when it's been health crisis in the last year so it was about 10 o'clock on sunday night and i said to my partner i really don't feel all right i think but i just need to get checked out and then that was the beginning of it so they admitted me they didn't know they did ct scans having been in there a couple of days while they were doing tests i knew that alex was about to take Pregnancy test, and we've been trying for years, and it was our last ever go. And we tried just after coming back from Cambodia. I really didn't think it was going to work. Alex has had several miscarriages, and we've been on this journey a long time. So we're thinking, well, one last go. It won't work. Then we're going to go travelling and do other things. La la la. And the consultant was stood at the bed and said, "I'm going to talk to you when your partner's here this afternoon, but so I'm not going to talk to you now. I'll wait till she's here, and I'll sit you both down and I'll talk to you then." And I thought, oh what could that be about <laughs> maybe that's about when I get discharged to go home or something then Alex sent me a text she said oh my god I'm pregnant which was great you know we still didn't know if that would work because she mm-hmm. had three miscarriages already so it was brilliant she was pregnant we were both elated, sky high with high hopes but realistic hopes about it and then Alex came in to see me for visiting hours in the afternoon and he said I think we've got to refer you to oncology and I was so ignorant. I was like, what's... I was thinking, I think I know. No, I don't. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Eventually, he said, I think it could be cancer, but I can't tell you that. And I was like, no, I've, I've been told I've got fibroids. It must be a ruptured fibroid. And he was saying, no, I think it's a malignancy, but I can't guarantee that. So then just this whole world of cancer sort of opened up to us. And it was a shock. And I kept saying for days, I think I was in shock. I kept saying, It's a fibroid. It's a fibroid and it wasn't. It was a foot long, over four kilos. The tumour was massive, and what came out was heavier than most babies are born. It was such a huge tumour, and I had to have very extensive surgery. So I had all my bits down there out, and my bowel resectioned, and lymph nodes sampled all the way up, up my chest. So it was really serious. They sent me home, for a few weeks to wait for surgery uh, they taught me through the surgery but obviously this tumour had been out of control for such a long time it had strangled my bowel and then I wasn't able to eat I was eating about a grape a day as I was still waiting for surgery and I thought this doesn't feel right I don't think I can go another five days like this so they did say if it gets if you can't cope ring up and we'll see what we can do so I rang up on the Friday went straight in and then I had my operation on the Monday and the consultant Yeah, and you know, he was very—he was a fantastic surgeon. Uh, He saved my life, basically, not for the first time last year. He sat down with Alex and I after the surgery to tell us what had happened. But he said, if they'd waited three days later, I wouldn't be here. The tumour was invading everything. I didn't realise how ill I was. I was very ill. I needed lots of blood
0: transfusions. You obviously did to a certain extent because you pushed it forward. Well,
1: because I was throwing up all the time and I couldn't even keep a grape down a day, I couldn't get off the Mm. sofa. I could just about drag myself to the loo and I thought, I still didn't know how unwell I was. I mean, your blood tells you an awful lot about your health. So if you need blood transfusions, I think that was probably telling me I was a lot iller because I was, had all kinds of infections and things raging, which I wasn't aware of either. But yeah, so it all came as a bit of a blow. I mean, our year last year was a bit like, as I was saying to you, it's a bit like the cheesiest Hollywood script of a, <laughs> a roller coaster life. That If you saw that in a movie, you would say... That's not that. No, it never happened. But amongst the real lows, massive highs. So... And they said, look, you know, it's going to be a big, massive surgery, but I had to go on to life support for four days. They said when they opened me up, if they'd known what was in there before they'd opened me up, they wouldn't have operated.
0: Is it a name for the cancer?
1: Yes, it's called sarcoma. It's a very rare type. It's a soft tissue cancer. Mm -hmm. Mine's in the uterus, uh, in the cavity there. So it's rare. And then of this rare type of cancer, there are 70 subgroups. And I'm one of the subgroups. So it's a rare, rare type of cancer. I was treated by the Marsden. I was operated on in Margate. Often you can have surgery and then don't need chemo and it won't return. Sometimes you have surgery but unfortunately my cancer came back within five weeks so it's incredibly aggressive. I think that was probably the most devastating day of our lives. My life so far anyway was sitting down and they'd done a CT scan and they said, oh, a couple of days before they said, oh, you're cancer free and it was... I was like, oh, brilliant, that's worked. I might yeah. be able to avoid chemo. But lo and behold, they called me back two days later and they said, oh, we've got to discuss your results with you. And I thought, well, that's a bit weird. They've told me what they are. And they said, no, I'm really sorry to tell you. We think it's come back within five weeks. I was like, oh, God. And Alex is <laughs> really
0: aggressive. Alex at this stage, she was still pregnant. Yes. So you had this weird thing going on whereby she was advancing ever more into a pregnancy and things were presumably going well and then the knowledge, the kind of bittersweet that this is happening while potentially Mm. bringing life into the world, you could Mm. potentially die. Yeah,
1: Yes, we're talking about it like this really I think, no, gosh no you know, want to help raise awareness really you know, that was the toughest thing and when I was having really heavy, and the consultants called it brutal chemo, I had the little six week scan of Pip Alex very sweetly printed me out a print and I used to stick it during my really heavy chemo onto the little tray table um and just look at that and think I've got to fight I've got to fight mm. to be here so yeah it was it was tough but I was in really good hands with a consultant in Margate he was mm. blooming amazing absolutely amazing and I got referred to for chemo to the Marsden mm-hmm. and they are experts in sarcoma so you know, they've been amazing. But the weirdest thing, when Alex was having her scans early, we went to the early pregnancy unit because of her miscarriages in Margate. It was on the same corridor opposite where I'd had my surgery and I was there for the best half of convenient. three weeks. <laughs> I know, so she'd have her scan. There'd be <laughs> a crossover. <laughs> she is. And check out how you are. I could go in, go over the road. So we got to know that, honestly, the people on that ward, and it's an all-woman ward, they are a credit to the NHS. They are the most incredible caring team they they were absolutely amazing they were brilliant and hilarious and high-spirited and hard-working and that's the first time my life was saved last year and I had four days of life support because my heart was everything was giving way because it was such intense surgery so that was touch and go so they had to put me in a coma for four days the worst thing is Alex was was very newly pregnant and I couldn't interact with her so she thought I might be brain damaged And she kept saying, is Sue brain damaged because I couldn't speak or interact? And they were like, well, we don't know. And so every day they couldn't bring me round and they couldn't bring me round and they couldn't bring me round. The people on the ward thought I'd died because I didn't come back after surgery. And then Alex was like, can you tell me whether she's... Oh, we still can't tell you. So I had to have a CT scan and I remember being wheeled back onto the ward. And they said, oh, we're sending you for a CT scan. And I thought, I thought everything's gone. Why are they... Why are they doing that? I didn't... I was not with it. Later on, they said, oh, we had to scan you because we weren't sure whether you'd had brain damage. I said, oh, God, poor Alex, you know, being heavily pregnant, going through all this anxiety. Poor you. The worst thing, though, Bryony,
0: was I lost my voice. Oh, God, <laughs> well, I mean... <laughs> I don't even want to think about that. You not being able to talk. That, no, but seriously, things like that. It's funny, uh, not funny. Sorry, none of this is funny. But yeah. the thing is, is that is it those big things that you have like no control over? So you have no control over a tumor growing in you, yeah. or but it's those little. Is it those little things that really hit you? Like, hang on, I can't communicate. I can't. Do you know what I mean? And those so there's little human touches that you need. You need, don't yeah. you, to kind of get by? Yeah, Are the things. That kind of polax you the most?
1: Yeah, no, I rem- you know I remember lots of things about being in hospital, and because I was still on hev- high doses of morphine coming out of the uh, induced coma, I remember being in the ward, and it's so weird all the different things that happen. I remember thinking, I'm so glad I can eat mini cheddars again, which is because <laughs> I'm addicted to them. But I, I had something called locked-in syndrome. Right, that's so... That, After traumatising surgery, which I'd never heard that's of. That's quite a... I mean, locked-in syndrome is quite a kind of rare and serious... Well, yeah. we just found out that I didn't have brain damage, but I still couldn't speak. I was kind of nodding and thumbs up and... But yeah, not being able to talk. And so we didn't know whether I'd talk again. I was like, I've got quite an expressive face, I've been told, so <sighs> I think I could talk a lot with and my you, you, face. It, actually,
0: so you do look so well you never know walking down the street what anyone's no. got going on in their life exactly and uh, yeah. mentally physically what was the prognosis that you were given not good at the time
1: so while Alex was getting more heavily pregnant mm-hmm. they told me that I'd have to be rushed in for emergency chemo because it was growing so aggressively so it was growing rapidly back in the same place and I'd started to get the rigors where you, your teeth chatter and you shake. It's as if you're in the polar Arctic conditions. And it was a really hot day, I seem to remember, last May. And I was shuddering and I had to basically, I had infections and they were mm-hmm. starting to rage. And I couldn't, my temperature was getting all over the place. So they said, You've got to have emergency chemo. We've got to rush you in. It's growing so quickly again. So I was thinking, Right. And I looked at Alex. She's, um, Alex is such an amazing woman. She's so strong stronger than I think any of us could ever give her credit for so she was carrying our baby and had to cope with all this stress yeah it was you know wow
0: she's one hell of a woman how were you when you got to birthday so to speak
1: well it was surreal really I'd I'd finished chemo in the middle of September and yeah it had been very brutal I'd lost a third of my body weight so I was eight stone instead of 12 Mm. something so I was very scrawny for the first time since being about eleven, I had no bum, no boobs, no hips, no thighs, no tummy. It's like the um, final insult. And
0: yeah, <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't mind being a bit smaller, but this is ridiculous. No, you got to cry. Sorry, I'm like literally gonna get reported for this. <laughs> got like an awesome figure. God no.
1: <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I was tiny. I was like a little bird, really. So I just had one pair of jeans and one t shirt. I borrowed one Alex's t shirts and. It was amazing. So she had an elected C-section,
0: partly because of my health, so I, mm. I wouldn't have been able to... Only to excuse... I, I also think that women should not have to justify uh, oh, C-sections or well, elective C-sections. No, but it, makes, yeah. it makes me go like... So, such a fight. Honestly, we had to go time and time
1: again to get a C-section agreed because it wasn't for medical reasons, medical yeah. in inverted commas, but Alex already had cholestasis. Between the two of you. Yeah, so we were in hospital every two days to have her monitored uh, in the last six weeks of her pregnancy, but luckily I'd just come out of the back end of my chemo, so...
0: I feel like one of these things in themselves would be stressful <laughs> enough without, like, throwing them all, and you're sitting here in such good humour, having a laugh about it, which is a real testament. Oh, God,
1: yeah. It was really tough. It was really, really tough, especially halfway through my chemo. As Alex was getting more heavily pregnant... I was getting iller through the chemo on the third dose, because it was very heavy chemo. I was in hospital in the Marsden for four days and three nights, hooked up 22 hours a day with pre-chemo drugs, chemo drugs, post-chemo drugs. And I had one to protect my brain because one of the drugs swells your brain. So it's bright blue. I seem to remember this bright blue thing going in me, bright, bright blue liquid, and that's iphosphamide. And the bright blue one is the thing that protects your brain so that the iphosphamide, one of the chemo drugs, doesn't damage your, your brain and make it dangerously swell. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. Anyway, you just have to do what you have to do. It, you know, he said it's an aggressive chemo uh, aggressive cancer, so we need to give you aggressive chemo. And he said it's going to be brutal. And I was thinking, oh, blissfully ignorant, I think, at the time. Mm. And then halfway through, I got sepsis neutropenic sepsis the worst thing about that was being isolated so I couldn't talk to anybody I was sat there like oh now I'm in my own little cubicle and I mean the two worst things so one was being locked in and not being able to talk that's so bad for me as anybody will tell you that knows me and then the second thing was being in isolation I thought please don't do this to me anything but isolation it was not comfortable for me before that we'd gone to see the local hospice thinking well we might need some extra help The weaker I was becoming, the more heavily pregnant Alex was Mm -hmm. becoming. So at one stage we were thinking, worst case scenario, she wouldn't be able to do too much towards the latter part of her pregnancy, and I might be very very ill and weak by then. If here, yeah. So yeah, we had a tour of the hospice. Oh, on the day that Alex had her sixteen week scan, so the same two hours apart, it was the worst decision of our lives because it was in Canterbury, the hospice and the hospital where she was being monitored. So we had her scan and we were, again, sky high. We were like, oh, God. And she was healthy and we could see the bones and the brain. And, the mm. you know, she was doing little back flips And uh, it was very exciting. And then we went for a tour around the local hospice to talk about end-of-life care. And it was like, oh, my God, that was awful.
0: Such such contrasts constantly, do you know what I
1: mean? Beginning of life and possibly yeah. end of Yeah, so that that was a big mistake, doing it on the same day.
0: By the time Pitt was born, you were better or, I don't want to say on the mend, but, you know. Uh,
1: Rallying, I think. Yeah, rallying Mm -hmm. around. Um, Yeah, I'd had my last chemo. I was starting to put a little bit of weight on. I was still quite small, but my appetite had come back. I think physically I was getting better, but mentally I'd got horrifically mentally unwell. Mm -hmm. So once I physically started to pick up, this strange thing happened where I think all the massive blows over that course of the preceding six months just hit me like a ton of bricks really and then I became incredibly depressed and acutely anxious so I had acute anxiety and depression very badly which to be honest with you the Marsden were good when I was an inpatient they kept saying and how are you doing and how are you psychologically Uh, they were very good at asking the questions but I think anybody going through that kind of experience you should be screened straight away to say it's likely you're going to have a psychological response yeah you're being given a cancer diagnosis whether it's curable or not you're going through life-threatening condition and i think people should up front be offered it not wait till you're i was rock bottom and then i went back to work for a week and was going to be a very gradual very slow phased return to work and then Alex had pips, so I had two weeks off on paternity leave. I think we still call it that, and it shouldn't be called paternity leave, but it's another issue. And, but that two weeks allowed my new medication to kick in. And thank goodness for that, because I don't think I, I lost all my confidence. Antidepressants? Initially, it was antidepressants, but they weren't helping with my anxiety. Okay. So then, I went to see a psychiatrist at the Marsden, who was absolutely brilliant. Who said, "I don't think those are the right drugs for you," because it was my anxiety that was absolutely. So you needed horrific. something
0: quite immediate that was gonna.
1: Yeah, well, it takes time. You know, it mm. took three or four weeks for it to have full effect, and I got uh, CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, for the anxiety. But that model didn't really work for me because that's about irrational fears and that are driving anxiety. Whereas even me and the practitioner were saying. But mine's a rational response to life threatening disease. That's, it works for lots of people. It didn't work for me. Mm. Um, medication, this time, I've had depression and anxiety before, but this time it was medication that helped me the most. So
0: now we are, I mean, you seem very well. You have a baby and yes, <laughs> yeah. And you have a national campaign to run. How much has working in mental health kind of helped you deal with? Everything that's been thrown at you, how has it changed the way you approach the campaign?
1: Well, I had a previous episode of depression and anxiety quite acutely back in two thousand and two, mm-hmm. and that was uh, classified as reactive depression. My father was very ill; we thought he was going to die, and I had a significant relationship breakup mm-hmm. uh, and both those things happened and kind of threw me into the universe, and I lost my way and. I I didn't want to live anymore I became very depressed but I'd done thousands of media interviews saying oh it's one in four of us and it can happen to any of us and none of us are immune but bang when it happened to me Mm. I think I had a lot of self-stigma which people talk Mm. about but that feeling of feeling worthless and I felt quite ashamed of it I shouldn't have done but I I did I had to come to terms with the fact it was happening to me Mm -hmm. and I did get help but it took me quite a long time I should have Straight away, thought, of course it's you know it's going to happen to me as well, and I should have got help. But I struggled on and struggled on, and eventually I got better with uh, psychotherapy and counselling. Mm-hmm. I didn't take medication and exercise, and I moved to New Zealand. So I was offered a job on the other side of the world. I'd become very suicidally depressed, and I thought, as I was starting to recover a bit of my strength, I thought I've got nothing to lose. So I left my, you know, my backup crew, as like my family and my friends, who are mm-hmm. amazing. And went to work for their leading mental health charity in New Zealand. So it was a big risk, and I thought oh, I can always come home if it doesn't work out. Mm. I, th- I think sometimes you get more confident at taking risks when you've you've literally wanted to give up on life. Yeah. Then you're like, well, it can't possibly ever be as bad as that. Yeah. So I did, and it was the best decision. And I just met Alex. We had three dates. <laughs> I said I've been offered a job in New Zealand. She said, where's that? I said, it's quite (laughs) far away. (laughs) Just a little plane ride. She'd just been made redundant. So we went out there together, possibly for a summer of fun. And here we are all these years later. So, yeah, yeah, it it was. And I met incredible people. I worked on partly on their campaign called Like Minds Like Mine, which Mm -hmm. was the world's leading mental health, anti-stigma, anti-discrimination campaign and what we were first modelled on. Mm
0: -hmm. So when I
1: came back, there were loads of things. I think fate was playing its hand very kindly to me out of adversity there became this massive opportunity to learn they've got a great approach to mental health in the Maori community which is yeah it's all interconnected your house of well-being it's called tefari Tapafa and it means the house of well-being so everything is all holistically intertwined your mental health your spiritual health your physical health your family the land everything
0: it's such a fantastic well-being model How much has changed since you have been involved in Time to Change? And Mm. how much more is needed? We've got all day. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly, yeah. Uh, How long has it been? It's 10 years since we started Time to Change. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, it's thanks to everybody speaking out. That's what's made the difference. An awful lot's changed. I mean, we've been on a journey. We say this is the generation for change around Mm. mental health. And it definitely is. So major, major progress, but we've still got a long way to go. So I used to talk about, at the start of Time's Change, I used to talk about the kind of the mountain that we have to climb, the Change Mountain, and we'd, we were at the foothills, sort of planning our route map up. And I think we're kind of, we're definitely beyond the foothills, we're, we're more than halfway up, we're definitely getting near a peak, but there is so much more we still have to do. I mean, it's not every workplace where people can openly talk about it and we know that from various different surveys not everybody Mm. feels confident disclosing not every school is focused on mental health and well-being we're working in about half of all secondary schools not everybody from every community and every ethnicity and any kind of background can talk openly about it and expect to get support and understanding but major major progress so oh some of the things I've seen change we always laugh in the team and go oh I wonder if that would have happened five years or ten years ago Uh, and I wrote a little wish list when I started um, as the interim director to set all the processes and systems up and I thought right one day we'll have blah 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 and I thought this is you know might as well throw it out to the unicorns this is never going to happen <laughs> what was
0: on there was it like you know one day major royals will be talking about their depression yes
1: <laughs> i had a list that started with you know everyday people like us famous sports people musicians businesses will come on board because i'll see that this makes business sense but also they have a duty to their employees uh we'll get the media talking about it more there'll be more coverage for mental health we'll get chief execs and top leaders in business talking about mental health and then we'll get MPs talking about it we'll actually have politicians talking about their own mental health mm-hmm. uh, and we had that in 2012 yeah. and then finally one day I do believe we will finally have a member of the royal family talking about it so we've got three and your interview was great
0: <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm very glad he chose you It's really interesting talking about the politicians. So 2012, Giles Walker stood up and spoke about his obsessive compulsive disorder and it was really moving. Here we are in 2017 and the problems are still there. I mean, I think it's really interesting, like, we look at changes over manifestos. You know, Mm. seven years ago, mental health was mentioned, like, twice in the Tory manifesto. And, you know, you invest a little in mental health and you get so much out of it. Mm. A happy country is a healthy country and vice versa. Yes, absolutely. There's an
1: economic argument. There's a social argument to this, there's a moral argument to it on all levels. One of the things that we talk about is the kind of system-wide discrimination Mm. for mental health, which is less resources, has been less attention over many decades and generations. I have to say, you know, it's brilliant. We've got loads of employers on board. Over five hundred employers are pledged to time to change and lots of them are very big high street names. And then we've got smaller organisations and sports groups and councils and energy suppliers and So it's brilliant that lots of employers are on board now. And I've had some amazing experiences going into all kinds of industries to talk about the mental health of the whole workforce but it's been a long time coming a long long time because a lot of the you know the employers that I talk to when I meet chief execs or chairmen and women they've done everything else under disability inequality but, but mental health has been I always talk about it as it's been in the too hard to do basket but because of the campaign and everybody talking out and other people campaigning on mental health it's now a much more confident space for employers to approach mental health in a sort of prevention and promotion way. And the thing that's driving the culture change isn't just the board sign up as an employer to time to change, but it's the staff. People film their own internal films, so Sky the Treasury, BT at Barclays. Lots of staff feature in their own films where they say, oh, hi, I'm Helen from accounts, and then you get Dave in IT or something. Mm. But people talking about bipolar, OCD, suicidal thoughts the culture change with people openly talking about it to their colleagues to their peers to the line managers the line managers talking about their own mental health the executives ideally talking about how they look after themselves or if they have mental health problems themselves as i keep saying there are millions of us in the workplace millions and millions of us mm. loving parenting living cycling <laughs> jogging you know we're all, we're in every family and in every community across the country you know we have got a lot more work to do for everybody to feel able to mm. to
0: talk out about it but so you're really awesome what would you say to anyone listening to this right now who is perhaps having to deal with a terminal illness be it physical or mental do you think that we should do away with the term mental you know the differentiation between mental and physical and we've seen with you how important both we're mm. linked, you know, intrinsically linked. Mm. Yeah, anyone who might mm. be listening right now, who is perhaps going through the experience of a diagnosis, or is you know is in it, or has a loved one. I know it's difficult to kind of put it down into a kind of pithy one sentence phrase, but you are here right now, looking pretty damn fine. My third hit, third strike, <laughs> and I'm out. <laughs> 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 I'm being all HR. What words of hope? would you give what light would you shine
1: on people Mm. the first thing is that everybody has a a mind and a soul everybody has their their body and you shouldn't ignore either of them and perhaps i'd been looking after my mental health but not my physical health interesting because of maybe where i am and what i do Mm. and i i learned from my first breakdown how to look after myself mentally it was hard going this time but i did i knew the theory and i knew how i what I should do I should get help I should go and see the GP I shouldn't be afraid of taking tablets I should think about talking treatments you know therapies at the same time so I think I was more skilled even though it was a more dire situation physically I was more skilled to deal with my mental health problems this time definitely and I opened up and told people how I was feeling and that really helped really helped having a good counsellor I ended up having counselling the CBT didn't work but counsellor worked and I took the medication no two ways about it But on the physical health side, when you're given a terminal illness, it's difficult to know exact advice. I do remember one of my really low points was I was still having chemo and good on women's hour for doing it. But there were all these women that had done amazing things. that had been given a terminal diagnosis and it was an absolute achievement getting out of bed and getting in the shower. I was so low and I thought bleep bleep oh bugger you know. Fuck off. Sort of, yes, exactly. Because I was so I was like, hang on a minute, I don't no one needs this pressure. Just
0: I think my advice would be You don't have to be a Wonder Woman. You don't You don't don't have to still be going to work with a terminal illness or or any kind of illness. No.
1: It's an achievement just being there and you know, it's a lot to handle, it's a lot for people around you to handle, they get exhausted too. Uh, so they need support as well. But don't be under pressure to do amazing things. Like there were all these people that had done these amazing things. And I thought I was a million miles away from that. Mm-hmm. So don't feel under any pressure to be anything other than simply being there is an achievement. Back to the mental health. Yes, recovery is absolutely possible now not everybody is always going to be in a good space with their mental health mm-hmm. and some people do struggle to get the right treatments or to get effective strategies but you can bounce back mm. with your mental health if you one talk to someone as soon as possible two don't be ashamed of it you're not alone there's millions of us three don't worry about whatever choice of treatment you make, whether it's medication or talking treatments or, or none of the above or coping strategies like exercise or whatever. Whatever you do that works for you, mm. no one, including yourself, should judge you, whatever your strategy is. Have hope for recovery, definitely, around mental health. I think the physical side is sometimes a bit of a different kettle of fish because, you know, like I, I didn't know what I was going to be facing I didn't expect to be here, to be honest. So, every day is a blessing. My mental health is nearly what stopped me going back to work and functioning again once my physical health started to improve. Treat them both with equal grace and
0: respect. You're amazing. I'm so glad you are here. I hope that we will be meeting for coffees and teas for a long time to come. I'm sure we will. Can you show me some more pictures of Pip after we finish can. this interview, please? I can. <laughs> thank you so much, Sue. Sue Baker, OBE, no less. <laughs> oh, can we get a damehood? Can, can we start a petition for that? <laughs> ten years of time to change, and here's to another ten years. Thank and you. Um, thank you for coming in. You're welcome. Thank you. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, a comprehensive list of mental health services is available on our website, which is www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash mad If you want help right now, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116 123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300 123 3393. That's 0300 123 3393. And they are accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. Finally, there's Young Minds, who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808. 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. And remember this, you are not alone.